Hello? Do you remember when I was like 14 and either for my birthday or Christmas, I asked for the Beatles anthologies on VHS? No. <laughs> you remember that? Is that is that where you stayed home on your birthday and we went off? Yes. Oh, okay. Where did you guys go? Uh, did we go to Pismo Beach? You went on vacation? Well, we had, well, didn't we went somewhere? Because you wanted to stay home and just listen to your tapes. That's what you said. Yeah, that was, that's how I remember. My birthday present was get me the Beatles anthologies, and then you have to leave the house, and yeah. I watch all eight episodes. Yeah. Didn't we go somewhere, Pismo Beach or Vegas or someplace? It seems like it was <laughs> Pismo Beach. Because <laughs> I didn't think anything of it until now that I have a four-year-old, and I realized that at the time Becky would have been four, so I didn't realize what a huge ask it was to not only leave the house, but leave the house with a toddler. Boy. I mean, your father has a better memory about stuff like that. Hello. Well, I don't have a perfect memory, but uh, my memory is is that I remember that day, and uh, so I forget how little Becky was, but she she was she would have been four. Yeah, but she loved Chuck E. Cheese, so I said, well, let's take her to Chuck E. Cheese to give Patrick some the time he wanted, and. Uh, Becky, uh, she couldn't believe we'd let her stay that long because usually Chuck E. Cheese, I'm, I'm worn out in you know uh, two hours, but we let her stay all all afternoon. And uh, Mom's memory was that you guys went on a full vacation, maybe to Las Vegas, but you're oh, saying no. it was actually Chuck E. Cheese yeah, for the afternoon. No. We we would we we would have not done that. No. Not even Pismo Beach. No. That birthday present with the Beatles anthologies was probably the most memorable of my life. I feel like it took my music obsession to the next level. I'd been reading music biographies and listening to music, but now I had watched over 11 hours of a documentary about a single band, and I could have watched a hundred more. From that point on to the present day, I have been endlessly fascinated with the stories behind my favorite music. But the reason those anthologies were on my mind was not for the documentary series, but actually the CDs that came out at the same time. From November 1995 to October 1996, the Beatles released three double CDs, full of rare songs and live performances and alternative takes, and maybe the most exciting thing, two new songs, Free as a Bird and Real Love. Now, these songs had started as demos that were recorded by just John Lennon, and after his death, Yoko Ono had given cassette tapes of this material to Paul McCartney, and then for the first two Beatles anthology CDs, Paul plus George and Ringo completed the songs. There was actually supposed to be a third one, a song called Now and Then, but George was not happy with it, so it was scrapped, and it's actually rumored to finally be released this year. Um, Paul McCartney said that he's finishing it using AI technology. So that's something I didn't see coming in 1995. But I loved those anthology CDs just as much as the Beatles' albums. When I was 14, I hadn't heard all the Beatles' albums. I was buying them one at a time whenever I got extra money, but I didn't have all of them. I actually owned Anthology 3 before I owned Abbey Road. So for some of the songs, I actually like the anthology version better than the actual album version. But okay, the reason I'm talking about all of this is because I really think the anthologies are where I fell in love with hearing demos of songs. 
To me, there's just something really intimate and special about hearing the rough draft of a song. And it was especially cool to hear this back in the 90s. Now, like every album on Spotify is a special edition that's crammed with demos and bonus tracks. But back then, to hear a different version of a well-known song was wild. Sometimes they weren't great, and you would hear what was missing that had made the finished song so good. But sometimes it made it even better. It was stripping the song down to its bare essentials, just a voice and a guitar or piano, and you would get a new perspective on the song's greatness. It was this voyeuristic thrill, like hearing a diary entry come to life, something that we weren't supposed to hear. It was like a way to hear a song again and have it feel like the first time. So today's stories are all about demos. But I'm actually not talking about demos like the ones on the Beatles anthologies. I'm not talking about extras. Today, I'm talking about demos that never got a second draft. Demos that became the definitive versions of the songs. Demo tapes that became commercial releases, whether the artists wanted them to or not, that changed the course of their careers. The first story is about a songwriter who only made demos so that other singers could learn her songs. But when one of those demos got out and was released as a single, it set up a seismic career shift for her. The second story is about a singer-songwriter who was in the middle of working on an album that would change his life and career. And then he took a break to record a completely different album's worth of demos in his bedroom. And finally, we have a story about an artist that owed his whole career to demos he released, but whose career was sidelined when an album full of those demos was leaked without his permission. I'm Patrick Hicks, and this is Good Measure. What keeps us together across time, across space? The fragile moments that could as well be lost, but we hold on. In 1959, a 20-year-old Jewish kid from Brighton Beach in Brooklyn, New York, named Neil Sadaka, was looking for his breakthrough hit. Neil had been writing songs since he was 13 and recording since he graduated high school, but none of his early singles had been very successful. His biggest hit so far was 1958's I Go Ape, which was a novelty song with a lot of monkey references in the lyrics. It went to number 42 on the charts, but his next song after that flopped, and Neil is worried he's going to be just a novelty one-hit and not even that big a hit wonder. And then, along with his writing partner, Howard Greenfield, he wrote a song about his ex-girlfriend. She was a girl he had dated in high school, who was actually already married to someone else by this time, but for whatever reason, she was on Neil's mind. So he wrote this song called Oh Carol. It became his first top 10 hit and saved his career. He went on to have even bigger hits like Calendar Girl and the number one song Breaking Up is Hard to Do before the Beatles came along and changed music so much that it essentially ended his career. Neil Sedaka still performs to this day, but this story is not about Neil. This story is about Carol. A lot of songwriters have written about their ex-girlfriends and a ton of them have named songs after them. But Oh Carol is the only song I know where the girlfriend became a bigger star than the singer. The girl that Neil had dated in high school was named Carol Klein. Like Neil, Carol was Jewish and from New York and was also a songwriter. She had been playing piano and singing since she was a toddler, 
When she was just four years old, her parents discovered that she had perfect pitch. Her mother was a teacher, and she knew how to play the piano, so she showed Carol some basics, but then Carol took off on her own, learning music theory and writing songs. Her father was a firefighter, and one day when Carol was a young teenager, he took her to meet Alan Freed. Carol said that with his badge, her dad could get into a lot of places. Alan Freed was already a legend of rock and roll. In fact, we might not even call it rock and roll if it wasn't for him. He was the radio DJ who popularized the term and was one of the first DJs in the country to focus on playing that kind of music. He got his start in Cleveland, Ohio, which is why Cleveland claimed the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame belonged there. But by 1954, he had moved on to New York, and there he met a 14 or 15-year-old girl who tells him that she writes songs. And Carol asks him if he has any advice for her. And this was a simpler time, so Alan said, if you want to get your songs heard, pick up the phone book, look up record companies, and just start calling. And so that's exactly what Carol did. She said, I was never brought up to be fearful or think I couldn't do anything for any reason, but certainly not because I was a girl. It was just not part of my parents' framework. So Teenage Carol picks up the phone book, flips it open to A, finds the first record label, Atlantic Records. It was still a pretty new label then, so she found their address, and then she just went there, walked in off the street. She said, my whole attitude was, someone's going to get heard, why not me? But despite Carol's fearlessness, her record label phone campaign didn't lead to a record deal. After she graduated high school at 16, she had skipped the first grade, she went to Queens College. The first person she met in Queens was actually Paul Simon. They became friends and made some demos of songs together, with him playing guitars and her playing piano, but they never actually wrote together. Years later, she asked him why they had never collaborated, and apparently he answered, I was never really good at collaborating. But after Paul Simon, the second person she meets in Queens is a guy named Jerry Goffin. Jerry was a couple years older than her. He was studying chemistry at Queens College, but he also wanted to write songs. So Carol and Jerry started writing together. He would write the lyrics, she would write the music. Then they became romantically involved, and then she got pregnant. So they both dropped out of college and got married, because that's what you did back in 1959. But when they got married, she didn't take his last name. She was already using a stage name. She had added an E to the end of Carol, and she had changed her last name Klein to King. Carol King and Jerry Goffin continued writing songs together whenever they could. By day, he worked at a chemicals manufacturer, and she worked as a secretary. And they had a baby at home. But at night, when the baby was sleeping, they made brilliant pop songs. They wrote songs for other people, and they also wrote some songs for Carol to sing. The first couple of songs they recorded with Carol as the artist went relatively unnoticed. When Neil Sedaka had the big hit with Oh Carol, Carol and Jerry wrote an answer song, a song called O'Neal. Now that song was a flop, it didn't get on the Billboard charts, but it did get the attention of a man named Don Kirshner. Kirshner was the head of the music publishing company that Neil Sedaka worked for, Alden Music, who had an office in the famous Brill Building of New York. So based on that song, Kirshner brought Goffin and King in to be professional songwriters. In 1961, Goffin and King had their first big hit, a song that went all the way to number one. The song was Will You Love Me Tomorrow? by the Shirelles. Tonight, the 
The Shirelles actually became the first black girl group to get a number one hit with this song, and Goffin and King are able to quit their day jobs. Then they go on a crazy run. In the early 1960s, Goffin and King are able to get an astonishing number of songs onto the Billboard charts. The Locomotion by Little Eva. Up on the Roof by The Drifters. Where the air is fresh and sweet. Up on the roof. One Fine Day by The Chiffons. One fine day, you're gonna want me for your and a lot of their songs that weren't major hits still became classics, like Hit Me, It Felt Like a Kiss by The Crystals, or Chains by The Cookies. Chains was even covered by The Beatles on their debut album, Please Please Me. John Lennon once said that he and Paul McCartney wanted to be the Goffin and King of England. Carol King was so successful as a songwriter that she'd given up any idea of being a performer herself. She was still recording, of course, she recorded all the time, but what she was recording was demos. Just demonstration recordings of her and Jerry's songs meant to be given to the singers to learn. Here's an example of Carol singing a demo of the song, Take Good Care of My Baby. This song is not as well remembered today as some of their other songs, but the song actually became a number one hit when it was recorded by the teen idol Bobby V in 1961. And not to keep bringing the Beatles up, but the Beatles did a cover of this song in their failed audition for Decca Records. The demos weren't recorded at the same quality as the real songs because they were never meant to be heard by the public, but Carol's demos were something else. In 1962, Carol and Jerry are working on another song for Bobby V, a song called It Might As Well Rain Until September. Supposedly, Bobby V's managers didn't think much of the song. They thought it was good enough for an album track, but not a single. But Bobby records it, and it's intended for his 1963 album called The Night Has a Thousand Eyes. But Don Kirshner, that guy who is the head of Alden Music, he really likes the song. He likes the Carole King demo even more than the Bobby V version. And Kirshner also has his own record label called Dimension, and he decides that he wants to release Carole's demo as is, as a single. And the song becomes a hit. Carol's first hit as a singer, not just a songwriter. It goes to number 22 on the US charts and goes all the way to number 3 in the UK. So now Kirshner wants to push Carol King as a solo artist. He wants her to go out on the road and tour behind the single. But Jerry and Carol have just had another baby, and now with two small kids, Carol doesn't want to go travel the country touring. Don Kirshner and Jerry convince her to do an appearance on American Bandstand. But the bandstand kids hate her. They give her performance a 42 out of 100. And Carol's devastated. And she goes back to songwriting. Goffin and King were able to survive the British invasion better than many of the other Brill Building songwriters. 
Even though the Beatles were influenced by early rock and roll and early 60s pop, their ascension hastened the end of a lot of those careers. But Goffin and King adapted. They wrote songs that would be covered by British invasion bands like Herman's Hermits. And then Don Kirshner got a job working for a new TV show that was hoping to cash in on the Beatles' fame, and they hired him to supply the show's fictitious band with real hit songs. And so Kirshner had Goffin and King write songs like Pleasant Valley Sunday that became hits for the Monkees. In 1967, the pair wrote a song for Aretha Franklin that would be one of their greatest songs. The legend goes that Carole King was just walking down the street in New York when Jerry Wexler, the co-owner of Aretha's label Atlantic Records, and the guy whose office Carol had walked into as a teenager, he drove by Carol walking on the street, and he shouted at her out the window, and he said, Hey, for Aretha Franklin's next album, I want you to write her a natural woman song. So that night, Carol and Jerry went home and wrote, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. The pair actually gave Jerry Wexler a co-writing credit on the song. But the next year, in 1968, Carol King and Jerry Goffin broke up, both their marriage and their songwriting partnership. Carol has diplomatically said, well, I moved to Los Angeles and the relationship didn't survive the move, but likely the real reason is the fact that Jerry had cheated on her and had a baby with another woman. So Carol took the kids and moved to Los Angeles and the relationship ended. And Carol gets to L.A. at a really exciting time, specifically in the area she lives called Laurel Canyon. There's a real scene going on with a lot of talented musicians and a lot of singer-songwriters that are about to blow up. When she gets there, she actually starts a band, although that's kind of short-lived, but they're called The City. But she gets a little taste of being an artist again, and she's ready to pick up her recording career where she left off with the demo of It Might As Well Rain Until September. So in May of 1970, she releases her first solo album called Writer. The album is made up exclusively of Goffin and King songs. And the album is not a success. It comes and goes without much fanfare. And Carol might have gone back to just songwriting again, except some of her Laurel Canyon musician friends like James Taylor and Joni Mitchell told her that she had to make another record. They said, this time you should record your own songs. So in January of 1971, she went into the studio with the record producer Lou Adler, and she brought in James Taylor and Joni Mitchell to help out with the record. She does do some of her previously written songs. She does You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman and Will You Love Me Tomorrow, and one other collaboration with Jerry Goffin called Smackwater Jack, but the rest of the album is either written solo or with lyricist Tony Stern. She has this one song called You've Got a Friend, which she records with James Taylor on guitar. And then at the same time, James Taylor also recorded his own version of the song with him on vocals. The album, called Tapestry, was released just a month later in February of 1971. And the album became an enormous hit. It might be hard for some people to understand who weren't alive at the time. It's difficult for me to wrap my mind around sometimes. Just how big this record was. The album sold 30 million copies worldwide. It won four Grammys, including Best Pop Vocal Performance by a Female, but also Album of the Year, Record of the Year, and Song of the Year. The double A-sided single, It's Too Late and I Feel the Earth Move, went to number one.
and that James Taylor cover of her song You've Got a Friend also went to number one. Winter, spring, summer, or fall. All you got to do is call. And I'll be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got a friend. So Carol King had her biggest triumph as a solo artist and also another huge triumph as a songwriter in the same year. The album was number one for 15 weeks. It stayed on the charts for 313 weeks. The only album ever to be on the charts longer was Dark Side of the Moon. Carol King was a huge influence on a wide range of artists. Everyone from Randy Newman to Tori Amos to Natalie Merchant to Rufus Wainwright to even popular artists today like Haim, Wiseblood, and Lucy Dacus. Her friend and collaborator James Taylor said that Carol King was the epitome of the singer-songwriter. He said it was a big change for Carol to leave New York for L.A. She left behind an established, hugely successful career as a brill-building tunesmith and went west, on her own, with two young daughters. She started writing by herself about herself. It came out of her so strong, so fierce and fresh, so clearly in her own voice, and yet so immediately accessible, so familiar, like you knew these songs already. Carol, of course, went on to have an amazing career. She continued putting out records throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, slowed down a little bit in the 2000s, and currently the most recent record that she's released was a record that came out in 2012. It was a compilation of her demo recordings called The Legendary Demos. When Tapestry came out and took over the musical world, there was a young critic working for Rolling Stone magazine named John Landau. He was a writer at Rolling Stone who had been there since the magazine's inception. He wrote about Jimi Hendrix and Cream for the first issue in 1967. He wrote a glowing review of Tapestry, saying that it fulfilled the promise of her first album and confirmed the fact that she's one of the most creative figures in all of pop music. But a couple years later, Landau wrote a more famous review, probably one of the most famous reviews in rock and roll history. It wasn't actually in Rolling Stone. It was in another paper that Landau wrote for called The Real Paper. In May of 1974, Landau saw a young man and his backing band opening for Bonnie Raitt at the Harvard Square Theater in Massachusetts. And Landau wrote a long essay about his love of rock and roll, his relationship with rock and roll, how sometimes he felt he wasn't as passionate about it anymore as he used to be. But he said, tonight there's someone I can write of the way I used to write without reservations of any kind. Last Thursday at the Harvard Square Theater, I saw my rock and roll past flash before my eyes, and I saw something else. I saw rock and roll future, and its name is Bruce Springsteen. And on a night when I needed to feel young, he made me feel like I was hearing music for the first time. Bruce Springsteen called this review one of the greatest life-saving raves of all time. See, at the time when this came out, Bruce had only released two albums— his debut, Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey, and his second album, The Wild, The Innocent, and The E Street Shuffle. Both albums had gotten good critical reviews, but hadn't sold much. He had no hit singles, no radio play. 
He actually said that his label Columbia Records was trying to keep his records off the radio because they were too long and they wanted to push their other artists instead. He still had one record left in his contract with Columbia, but they were ready to dump him after that. And then the Landau Review came out, calling him the future of rock and roll. And it got Columbia back in his corner, but he really needed his next album to be a winner. Columbia started using the review in their marketing, and venues that Bruce played at actually taped copies of the review in the front window, hoping to get more people to come to the show. And it was at one of those places, a venue called Joe's Place in Cambridge, Massachusetts, that Springsteen was standing outside the club looking at the review in the window, and a voice behind him said, What do you think? And when Springsteen turned around, it was John Landau. So they got to talking, and they found that they had a lot in common. Not just a shared love of rock and roll, but shared values about rock and roll. Bruce said they shared a belief in the bedrock values of musicianship, skill, the joy of hard work, and the methodical application of one's talents. After that, Bruce went to visit John at his apartment in New York, and they talked music and played records for hours. Bruce confided in him that he thought that he was pretty good, but he wanted to be great. At the time that that Landau review had come out, Bruce had only written one song for his next album, but it was a song called Born to Run. John Landau became such a close friend that Bruce actually asked him if he wanted to come on board and help him produce his next album. Bruce and John Landau worked on the album, which would be called Born to Run, for over a year. Columbia, bolstered by the Landau review, gave Bruce a big budget so that he could take one last swing for the commercial fences. And it worked. The record became his breakthrough. It went to number three on the charts, and the title track became a top 40 hit. After the album, Springsteen's manager, Mike Appel, wanted him to release a live album. He told him we've got to cash in on the success of Born to Run right away, but Springsteen didn't want to do that. He wanted to get back into the studio with John Landau and start working on his next record. So Springsteen ended up firing Mike and making Landau his manager too. So he went from Springsteen's critic, to his friend, to his producer, to his manager. Mike sued, and they had a lengthy legal battle that delayed the follow-up record, Darkness on the Edge of Town, until 1978. In 1980, Bruce Springsteen released the double album, The River. It was his first number one album, and it contained his biggest single to date, a song called Hungry Heart, that actually he had originally written for the Ramones, but then kept for himself. That went to number five on the pop charts. And Bruce said that having a number one album and a top five pop hit was a game changer. His albums started selling better, his tour ticket sales improved, and his crowd diversified. He joked that women actually started coming to his concerts. He was no longer a cult figure. Entering the 1980s, Bruce Springsteen was a star. But soon he would be launched to another level of stardom becoming a music icon on the level of Michael Jackson or Prince or Madonna. And it wouldn't have happened if it weren't for some demos. By the end of 1981, going into 1982, 
Bruce had a realization that he was spending way too much money going into big fancy studios, trying to work out what songs would go on his records. He said he wanted a better and less expensive way to test out his new material. He had sometimes recorded demos onto a boombox, but he wanted something a little more sophisticated. So he had his guitar tech, a guy named Mike Batlin, go out and buy a four-track. Mike Batlin came back with something called the Teak 144 Cassette Recorder. This was basically the first real portable studio. Bruce had been writing a lot of pretty dark songs lately. He'd gone through a breakup, he was going through what he said was his first major real depression, and he was writing a bunch of songs that were meditations on childhood. Bruce had grown up poor in New Jersey, bouncing around from his dilapidated grandparents' house to half-houses that he lived in with his abusive father, and he started channeling all those kinds of memories. He wrote a few songs from a child's point of view. He brought in influences like the writer Flannery O'Connor, the filmmaker Terrence Malick, and artists like Bob Dylan, Woody Guthrie, and Hank Williams. He said the songs were written really quickly, and that they were in a lot of ways the opposite of the rock music he'd been writing. So one night, January 3rd, 1982, Bruce sets up his new four-track recorder, a microphone, a guitar, a harmonica. He has his guitar tech, Mike Batlin, act as sort of the engineer, and he records 15 songs in one night. He throws in a little electric guitar, some backing vocals, a little mandolin and glockenspiel, but everything is done by him in the bedroom of a house that he was renting in Colts Neck, New Jersey. A couple months later, he records another couple songs, and then he mixes the whole thing through this guitar echoplex unit onto a boombox. And not just any boombox, but a boombox that had once fallen out of his canoe and sat in water and mud. Bruce Springsteen said the whole thing cost about $1,000. And then he took this cassette tape of demos into the studio, and he started showing the songs to his band. Starting in January of 1982, Bruce would record 70 to 80 songs over the next two years to get enough for an album. He recorded at two big New York studios, the Hit Factory and the Power Station. A couple of the songs from those demo recordings made the jump to the full band arrangement really well. One of the songs of the 15 recorded that January 3rd night was a song called Born in the USA. It was taken from the title of a script that was given to him by Paul Schrader, the guy who had written Taxi Driver. In its demo version, the song was an angry, acoustic protest song about a Vietnam veteran coming back and being treated poorly by society. And the refrain of Born in the USA was a sarcastic indictment of the system. Born down but when they went to record the song with the full band in the studio with producer John Landau and also Chuck Plotnick, the song turned into something else entirely at least sonically. It was more upbeat and rocking, it added a lot of 80s synthesizers, and they got a very famous drum sound out of Max Weinberg, the drummer for the E Street Band. They put a gated reverb on his snare drum that basically became the sound of drums and pop music for the rest of the decade. Dog has been beat you 
I think the studio arrangement is what made Born in the USA one of the most misunderstood songs of all time. A lot of people, even to this day, think it's a song celebrating patriotism, and completely miss the point of the song. A couple other songs from the demo cassette also make good full band songs. Downbound Train and a song called Child Bride that later became Working on the Highway. But for most of the songs on the demo tape, Bruce just couldn't recapture the magic in the studio. The songs weren't working. He started writing a bunch of other songs, songs like Glory Days and I'm on Fire. And he started to realize that he had two distinct records on his hands. One was a very slick commercial rock and roll album. And the other was an album that he would call Nebraska. From the town of Lincoln, Nebraska, with a sawed off 14 on my lap, through the badlands of Wyoming, I killed everything in my He briefly considered releasing a double album, Nebraska being one part and the other part being the album that would be called Born in the USA. But he scrapped that idea. He felt they were just too different. They recorded all of the songs in the studio in something called the Electric Nebraska Sessions. But Springsteen just felt like it wasn't right. He said, On listening, I realized I'd succeeded in doing nothing but damaging what I'd created. We got it to sound cleaner and more hi-fi, but not nearly as atmospheric, as authentic. So he said he pulled out the original cassette that he'd been carrying around in his jeans pocket, and he said, this is it. He went to his engineer, Toby Scott, and said, there's just something about the atmosphere on this tape. Can this just be the album? Can we just make a master off of this? And it wasn't as easy as you would think. The other producer on Born in the USA, Chuck Plotkin, he said that one of the things about Nebraska is... It's cut on a crap piece of equipment. It wasn't a proper recording setup. It was also recorded by somebody who'd never recorded anything before. The recording volume was so low that they thought there was no way that they would be able to master this and put it out on vinyl. It would be too distorted. They talked about maybe putting it out on just cassette tape only. But Toby Scott was able to work his magic and reduce the noise enough to get it ready to be a commercial release. And so on September 30th, 1982, while the band is still working on Born in the USA, Bruce Springsteen releases Nebraska. Well, now, everything dies, baby, that's a fact. Maybe everything that dies someday comes back. Put your makeup on, fix your hair pretty, and make me tonight. Bruce said it got some good reviews, but no airplay. He didn't tour behind the album. And then in June of 1984, he released the album Born in the USA. The album was one of the biggest of the 1980s, selling 30 million copies, going to number one in numerous countries, and featuring seven top ten singles. The lead single, Dancing in the Dark, was the last one recorded for the album. And it was only done because John Landau insisted that the album still needed a hit single. Born in the USA made Bruce Springsteen an icon, but a lot of people consider Nebraska to be the better record. Rolling Stone called it the bravest of his first six records, his most startling, direct, and chilling. Years later, the music website Pitchfork would look back at Nebraska and rate it a perfect 10 out of 10. They wrote, 
This is Springsteen at his most novelistic, trying to get into the heads of murderers and corrupt cops, or diaristic, revisiting detailed scenes from his childhood. But the record's most lasting power comes not from its words or melodies, but from its sound. The atmosphere in the room and the grain of Springsteen's processed voice scramble notions of a fixed time and place. To put on Nebraska and hear its world of echo is to enter a dream. Nebraska is above all a sonic experience, which explains why he could never get the songs right in a proper studio. When Springsteen wrote about Nebraska, he said, All popular artists get caught between making records and making music. If you're lucky, sometimes it's the same thing. Bruce Springsteen's home recordings, as rough as they may have been, were a harbinger of the way music would evolve in the next few decades. No one blinks an eye now if an album is recorded in someone's bedroom. Teenagers have home studios that surpass what Springsteen had access to, even in the hit factory and power station. And combined with the power of the internet, this has led to an unprecedented democratization of music. If Bruce Springsteen hadn't been Bruce Springsteen, there's no way he could have gotten Nebraska released. But now the next Bruce Springsteen can release as many Nebraskas as they want. Bruce had to fight for Nebraska to be released as is, but our next story is about an artist whose album was never intended to be released, and he's had to wrestle with the repercussions of people considering a leaked album of demos to be his debut. It's a story about an enigmatic pop singer named Jay Paul. Jay Paul was born in London to parents who had migrated there from India. And he grew up listening to some Indian music, filmy music, music produced for Bollywood films, but also the classics of rock and pop that a kid born in the 80s would be raised on. Michael Jackson, The Beatles, Queen. He had a special affinity for ELO. Later on, on his MySpace page, he would list hip-hop producers like Jay Dilla and R&B singers like D'Angelo as influences. But he said his musical tastes never evolved that much from what he listened to as a kid. As an adult, he said he didn't own an iPod or use iTunes, but he dreamed of making it as a singer. In 2007, when he's just 19 years old, Jay Paul records a demo of a song he calls BTSTU, which stood for Back to Save the Universe. He recorded the song in under an hour. He sings on the track and also plays guitar and drums and synths, and he has a friend named Sam Pickering who adds some saxophone at the end. It's a demo, so it's not super polished, his vocals are pretty low in the mix, it's kind of glitchy, it's kind of weird to listen to the first time. And the song didn't blow up overnight. But that's only because he didn't release it right away. It wasn't until late 2009 that the song was actually put out anywhere. The story goes that Jay's older brother Anup heard the song and loved it, and he started emailing it to a bunch of music blogs. But Anup, who later on would be known as A.K. Paul, is actually credited with doing backing vocals on the track. So I'm actually not 100% sure if he added those later, or if the him hearing it and sending it to blog story is apocryphal, Or it could have been a different brother altogether, 
You'll learn as we go through here that J. Paul is very mysterious, and there's not a ton of information about him. But what we do know is that in late 2009, BTSTU, the unmixed demo, is put on J. Paul's MySpace page as a free download. Then on January 11th, 2010, he posted it on the music streaming service SoundCloud, which was only a few years old at the time. And that is when things detonated. BTSTU was covered on influential music websites like Pitchfork and written about in publications like The Guardian and The Fader. In May 2010, The Guardian named J. Paul New Band of the Week and wrote, There's more pop invention in this warped Wonderkins MySpace demos than there is in most fully formed songs. They described BTSTU as mad 8-bit sonics, bursts of burbling bass, crisp dub space beats, and weird warped harmonies. But somehow, J. Paul manages to make it all seem like a pop song. The Fader wrote, he's definitely spent some time listening to dubstep, but also probably a bunch of Madonna and Pete Rock, and probably was into video games with lasers. Dude's on some shit. Jay was pretty modest about it. He's notoriously humble and soft-spoken. Jay said, it felt like the first time all my ideas had come together into something really concise, so I was really proud of it. I didn't think anyone would like it, though. Music to me was just a hobby. And in a way, I didn't care about showing it to anyone. But based off this one song, a bunch of record labels were interested in turning his hobby into a career. Eventually, J. Paul signs with XL Recordings, the big independent label that had acts like The White Stripes, M.I.A., Radiohead, Vampire Weekend, and Adele. On New Year's Eve 2010, XL tweeted that in the first six months of 2011, that you would see albums from a number of artists on their roster including Adele and Jay Paul. Now that Adele album would be 21, released just a few weeks after the tweet, and went on to be the best-selling album of the 21st century, selling tens of millions of copies worldwide, breaking numerous chart records. But there was no album from Jay Paul in 2011, in the first six months or otherwise. XL did officially release BTSTU in a slightly cleaner version than the demo on April 21st, 2011. And this release made waves too. The important New Zealand DJ Zane Lowe named it the hottest record in the world that week. And there was a race to see who could be the first global megastar to sample the song. On May 11th, 2011, Beyonce had a listening party for her upcoming album, Four. One of her new songs from that album was a song called End of Time that starts with a sample of BTSTU's refrain, Don't Fuck With Me. But that album wasn't released until 2012, so Beyonce got scooped by the rapper Drake, who on May 20th, 2011, posted a new song on his website called Dreams Money Can Buy. And this song also featured a sample of BTSTU. I got car money, fresh start money, I want Saudi money, I want art money, I want women to cry and pour out their heart for me, and tell me how much they hate it when they apart from me. Then in 2012, Jay Paul finally released some new music. In March, he released another demo. This song was called Jasmine, in parentheses, demo, and it was uploaded to his SoundCloud page, and it got 500,000 plays in the first month. Pitchfork named it Best New Track an hour after it had been uploaded. Hey, hey, 
It was officially released as a single by XL on April 9th. In May, 100 copies of the Jasmine demo on vinyl were pressed, making it J-Paul's first ever release that wasn't online only. Pitchfork also named it the 10th best track of 2012. And that was a prolific year by J-Paul standards because he also collaborated on a song with Big Boy from Outkast. But 2013 started out as a quiet year for J-Paul. Some people speculated and a lot of people hoped that he would be dropping his album that year, but there'd been no advanced press, no official hype. Then on April 13th, 2013, the author of this music blog called Crackin' the Road was randomly looking through the website Bandcamp looking at new uploads, and they found a 16-track self-titled album called J. Paul. The tracks had no titles, although both Jasmine and BTSTU were on there. It cost £7 to download, and Crackin' the Road immediately posts about it, and their post starts getting picked up by everybody. Music websites scramble to cover the surprise release. The Fader said, Six years since J. Paul recorded the demo for BTSTU, and three years since signing to XL Records, the Rainers Lane-based enigmatic pop mastermind has surprise uploaded what is presumably his debut LP to Bandcamp. People were quick to praise the record, but also some sites were immediately skeptical. The website for the magazine Complex questioned whether this was actually an official release. They said, yeah, we get that Jay Paul's a mysterious dude, but look at that Bandcamp account. It was registered only a few hours before the album's release. This was the account's first upload. And plus, the sound quality doesn't say a big budget XL recordings release. And it turns out, a couple days later, on April 15th, Jay Paul made his first ever tweet stating, to confirm, demos on Bandcamp were not uploaded by me, this is not my debut album, please don't buy. Statement to follow later, thanks, Jay. An A&R person commented in the replies on Twitter that someone had stolen Jay's laptop and had released demos and unfinished versions of these songs. XL came out and made an official statement stating this music was not uploaded by Jay, it is not his debut album, it's a collection of various unfinished recordings from Jay's past. Neither XL or Jay will take any money from the sale of this music. We've been working with Bandcamp and PayPal to resolve this situation, and they've told us that all purchases will be refunded within the next seven days. And eventually the album was taken down from Bandcamp. But some people speculated that it was all a publicity stunt. People found that the receipt you got from buying the album came from an email address that was linked to Jay Paul. Some people thought that maybe he just released the album himself because he was fighting with XL. And there were some things that seemed to sort of back this up. One person tweeted, Someone from XL told me a month ago that Jay Paul had basically retired. The owner of XL, Richard Russell, had given an interview the year before, and when he was asked about Jay Paul, he said, The way he's going about things is, I think for many, baffling. But this self-titled album, despite clearly being early demos and unfinished songs, was still really well received. Pitchfork named it the 20th best album of the year. But Jay Paul was humiliated and upset. He was already mysterious. He didn't talk to press. He'd only ever done one short interview in his whole career. And now he basically disappeared. He stopped releasing any music, even on the slow pace that he was previously releasing it. But with the little music he had released, a lot of people felt that he had already changed the direction of pop music. He influenced alternative electronic music to the point that every SoundCloud and Bandcamp artist that came out after him sounded like him. He influenced artists that did go on to be big names like James Blake, Frank Ocean, Lord. Vice Magazine called him this generation's Velvet Underground. 
Not a lot of people heard him, but everyone that did was influenced by him. J. Paul went six years without releasing any music. His brother A.K. Paul did a lot of work, mostly as a producer, and the world was left asking, what if? Then, on June 1st, 2019, J. Paul went on Twitter and made his second ever tweet, his first in over six years since confirming that the leaked album was not his debut. The first tweet just said, hi. Then he followed that with a tweet saying that he had been working on some new music. He had two new tracks, one called Do You Love Her Now and one called He, which he released as a single in 2019. And to date, these are actually the only two finished songs he's ever put out. Then to coincide with the new songs, XL actually did an official release of that leaked Bandcamp album. They called it Leak 413 and in parentheses Bait Ones, which is what the album was supposed to have been called. The official release had to take out a bunch of random samples that were included on the original leaked album, some of the ones from movies and TV like Gossip Girl and Harry Potter, but for the most part it was released just as it had been when it leaked. With the official release of Bait Ones came a lot more details surrounding the leak. It was confirmed that the leak occurred due to a misplaced burn CD, and they said that they brought in London police to investigate and that they had cooperation from Bandcamp and PayPal, but they never could find the leaker. But J. Paul released a really long statement telling his side of the story for the first time. He said, Some of my unfinished demos were put up for sale illegally via Bandcamp. The leak consisted of a fairly random collection of tracks I had made over quite a long period of time, from roughly 2007 to 2013, in various stages of completion. As things unfolded, I went through a number of phases, but the immediate overriding feeling was one of complete shock. I felt numb. I couldn't take it all in at first. I felt pretty alone with everything, like no one else seemed to view the situation in the same way I did, as a catastrophe. There was a lot going through my mind, but the hardest thing to grasp was that I'd been denied the opportunity to finish my work and share it in its best possible form. I was also frustrated by how all this was being framed online, leading to the widespread belief that I had decided to leak my own music, despite my record label and I saying otherwise. I suppose the music was special to me in a way. Stuff that I began writing as a teenager in my room just for fun, eventually signing my record deal with it at 21, and hoping that I could put it towards a debut album with XL. I guess having that dream torn up in front of me hit pretty hard. There were some long-term effects for me following the leak. There was a significant loss of trust. For the next three years or so, this one event was all anybody asked me about. On a personal level, things gradually went south, and I had a breakdown of sorts. I was in quite a bad place for some time. I was unable to work and withdrew from life in general. Recently, I've been having therapy of various kinds, and this has helped me get to a place where I can begin to think about returning to music. I've been able to acknowledge some of the trauma and grief. I've grown to appreciate that people have enjoyed that music and lived with it, and I accept that there's no way to put that shit back in the box. It will always be a little painful for me to listen to myself, but I don't want to deny people a chance to hear it. Even with such a small musical output, people have already called J. Paul a legend. And he keeps on surprising people. In 2023, he announced that he was going to make his live debut at Coachella. He played two sets. The first, people said, was a little rough. But hey, it was his first ever show. 
second one people said was better. After that, he's been doing a bunch more live shows and even playing some new music. So despite the weird twists and turns that his career has had, the story of the singer who got famous from his demos isn't over yet. And one more thought for good measure. There were a few different stories that I considered for this episode. When you start looking into it, there are a surprising amount of songs that became hits as demos. The collective soul song Shine from the 90s was apparently just a demo released as a single. The Cars back in the 70s started getting radio play with their demo of Just What I Needed. But one of my favorite stories is one from the 60s about the band Tommy James and the Shondells. It's not technically about a demo, but that's kind of splitting hairs. It's about their song Crimson and Clover. Tommy James and the Shondells had had a couple big hits in the 60s, I Think We're Alone Now and Moni Moni, and Crimson and Clover was kind of a new sound for them. They were moving more into psychedelic rock, and they recorded it in 1968, and Tommy James made just a rough mix of it that he intended on just giving to this guy at his record label Roulette Records, this guy named Morris Levy. And this was definitely not supposed to be the final version. They still wanted to mix it more and master it and add in some effects. But they wanted to just give it to Morris to see what he thought of it, to see if he thought it could be their next single. Well, a few days later, Morris is in Chicago, and he's at the radio station WLS. And in the interview, he starts talking about Crimson and Clover. And they ask him, could he play that rough mix of Crimson and Clover for them? Now, he didn't even play the whole song. He only played a minute of it. But the radio station took that snippet, looped it, and started playing it on the radio, calling it a world exclusive. And at first, Morris is pissed. He calls them. He begs them, don't play this song on the radio. It's not done. But the radio station tells him listeners are going crazy for this song. Everybody's calling in to request it. And so Morris changes his mind. He's like, this is going to be the single. Let's press it as is. Tommy James still wants to mix it. And Morris says, nope, we're putting it out. And the song ends up becoming a number one Billboard hit. Some words said in passing, the entire world crashing down again. You think that it's over, but then it goes on and on and on. This episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Patrick Hicks. Thank you, as always, to Brian Ashiba and the band Joyweather for the theme song to this podcast. Please, if you're not already, go subscribe to me on Patreon. Thank you, as always, to my wife, and thank you to my parents and my little sister for that birthday almost 30 years ago where they left the house and let me watch the Beatles anthologies. See you next week.